This is Factual America. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. Each week I watch a hit documentary and then talk with the filmmakers and their subjects. The Twelfth Victim sheds new light on the infamous 1958 Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate murder case, in which the teenage couple was charged and convicted of brutally killing 11 victims at random in a case that gripped a nation. While there is no doubt about Starkweather's culpability, the series re-examines the guilty verdict of Carol Fugate, who was 14 years old at the time of the killings, and questions the media and judicial system's treatment of her despite her self-proclaimed innocence. Using archival and countless film and television series inspired by the killings, award-winning director Nicola Marsh also explores our continued obsession about a case that is more than 65 years old. Join us as we also discuss Nicola's next project, why true crime is so popular, and what it was like to film the new U2 documentary with David Letterman. Stay tuned. Nicola Marsh, welcome to Factual America. How are things with you? They're great. I'm envious of your hot drink that I just saw peek into the frame. But aside (laughs) from that. There you go. I mean, if you wanted to go grab one, we can can always pause. I'm... uh... I'm sure you would like to have a good cuppa, but... Uh, I mean, you know, I've got my, like, obligatory Los Angeles water because it's so dry here, but I, I think I'll survive. <laughs> How many... <laughs> that's, that's your day's, uh, day's intake in one, one go, isn't it? Yeah, it was just like, you know, I was like, fill up as, you know, and then it's through the day I'll take sips. Okay. Well, um, thanks again for, uh, for coming on to the, uh, to the podcast. It's very much appreciated. Uh, for our uh, listeners and viewers, just to remind you, we'll be... Nicola's just, uh, well, we've just released a film a docuseries, uh, The 12th Victim. It's on Showtime in, uh, I guess, since February sometime in North America. Is it anywhere else yet, or is that in the works? You know, I don't actually know how that works, the international distribution. Okay. We made it knowing, knowing it was going to go to the U.S. market, but, you know, Showtime is part of a much bigger company, so I'm sure that it will go other places eventually. Okay. Well, well, thanks again, and congratulations, and thanks for making this docuseries. I really enjoyed it, uh, so um, uh, I'm keen to talk to you more about it. But uh, for the most, many of our listeners then, uh, well, a good portion are in the U.S., so they've had a chance to see it, certainly, but uh, many others have not. So uh, maybe start us off, if you don't mind, and tell us what The 12th Victim is all about. Right. So if you're over 50 in North America, you've probably heard of Charles Starkweather. But if you're under 50, you probably haven't. But uh, Charles Starkweather was this young kid uh, in 1958, Nebraska, and he went on a killing rampage. um, And it coincided with the sort of birth of live television news. And so he's on the run and the news is broadcasting it. And he's on the run with his girlfriend at the time. Uh, and I think that the whole way the murder spree unfolded was just so unbelievably jarring and shocking and exciting and titillating to America that they couldn't keep their eyes off it. And if you look at the photos of particularly Charles, but also, you know, Carol, you know, when they get captured, you know, not to ruin the surprise, but they get captured. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> he's wearing the shirt of this wealthy businessman that he's murdered, but he's been shot by the police and he's got some of his blood is on the shirt. 
Mm. And he's incredibly handsome and it's black and white photography and he's just surrounded by like sheriffs and reporters. And it is one of the most eye-catching dramatic imagery you can possibly imagine. And so uh, after they get captured, he goes to the electric chair, his girlfriend goes to prison. Um, You know, filmmakers just, this was such a elixir that their story and, um, they made the movie Badlands, Terence Malick's movie Badlands, um, about them and then Natural Born Killers and True Romance and this whole sort of guy, girl, gun, car, cross America um, genre got spawned basically by these two. Um, and what really intrigued me about the story was after I did a little bit of research and talked to a couple of people who'd written a few books about it. His girlfriend who went to prison for um, 18 years is like manifestly innocent, like completely (laughs) innocent. And she's not even his girlfriend. She's his ex-girlfriend that he's sort of like completely coercing into going with him. And so that is the story that the series attempts to tell, which is really her story. And how in the world did she end up going to prison for 18 years? And how could she be innocent when she'd been alongside him for all these murders? Hmm. I mean, I think, uh, and as you said, she's always, she's always maintained her innocence, right? From the, from the get go. Um, and so she was like a, you know, I mean, what is that? It's interesting because what your film shows, I mean, your film captures so many things and you've touched them all, touched on all of them in your, uh, in your description. Uh, but uh Maybe let's focus uh, even on, on, on the events a bit and in terms of, uh, you know, what, I mean, what was, what was going on there? Because I think in terms of, you know, it's, it's obvious, I mean, you said it's obvious she's innocent, but it's also very obvious that he's guilty, right? So, uh, uh, but quickly, people are already making up their minds about her culpability, aren't they? And in terms of... Uh, I mean, it's it's a so it's a window on where one thing's it is it's a window where American justice system was at the time, and our views of 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 these of of such events, which were quite jarring, would be jarring now, but were especially jarring then. Um, and you know, how did this? I I think you said, but she's only fourteen. You know, how did this? Uh, how did this fourteen-year-old get to be seen as so? And and maybe I should. A brief stop. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you know, spoiler alerts and all that stuff that come with yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, I you feel know, like yeah. I'm going to get some deep spoiler alerts <laughs> any second now. But well, what you, say? you know, what can you say? Well, go see it. Or if you haven't seen it, maybe we'll skirt around this. But, um, you know, it was, is it fair enough? It was almost a presumed guilty before proven innocent sort of element. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even when I first started reading about the story, so... She comes home from school, and as far as the outside world knows, Charlie's already at her house, and they stay at the house for five days. And when they leave, her mum and dad and half-sister are dead. And so it's hard not to imagine how they could have spent five days Mm -hmm. in the house and she wouldn't have been somehow involved. And it's really, so her story though, which sounds a little far-fetched until Mm -hmm. you really think about the weather and the environment and how old she is. It's like, 
She comes home from school. She's 14. Her boyfriend's 19. She has dumped him the week earlier and he's stormed off fuming and he's got a real temper. And she gets home and she opens the door and he's standing there with a shotgun in her face. Mm. And he's like, you better listen to me. I'm going to have your entire family murdered and killed. They're being Mm. held hostage by my gang. Mm. And she looks around and her family are nowhere around to be seen. And she believes it. What she doesn't know is actually they are, their bodies have already been destroyed. They've already been murdered and their bodies are in the outhouse around the back. Mm. And I'm like, how did she not know for five days? Yeah. But it's the middle of winter. And he, we didn't put it in because it's slightly unsubstantiated. But she was like, he rolled her up in a carpet every night or mm. he'd tie mm. her to a chair. Like she wasn't like just roaming around freely. Um and she was extremely invested, I think, which is the bigger issue in this moment of real trauma and uh, mm. and dealing with this ex who she can visibly see is in like deep psychosis mm. in believing that her family is still alive mm. and that somebody's going to get her out of this. And this is not as bad as she thinks it is. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, no, I, it's, it's, it, there's that, there, obviously there's that element, but I think it's also, um, uh, and I think, yeah, I mean, people should go see the film in terms of the details of the, the sort of the, the crime element of this and not giving anything too much away. But it's, it's uh, as you've, you know, as you, so they, this happens and he ends up going on this, as you say, this murder killing spree across Nebraska and into Wyoming. Um, and what you've also have captured is how it's, I mean, and as you say, anyone who's in the sort of fifties or younger, don't uh, we don't don't even some of us may not even. I mean, I grew up in the United States. I didn't really even it didn't ring a bell for me. Uh, but we can talk more about that later because it what did ring a bell was all those cultural references you mentioned. Um, but oh, I guess what I was going to say is actually, I mean, is that what was the movie you when you were going into this? Is that the movie? Did you know what you were going to be making? Because or was it kind of as you were got further into this, it realized what you had on your hands was this this situation of someone who was obviously innocent in your in, well, as, as you I, saw it. As we started making the series, it was based on a book, and the book strongly makes the case for Carol's innocence, written by Linda and Steve. Uh, but I guess my sort of just generic habitual skepticism was sort of kicking in as I'm sort of turning right. the pages and I'm like, what? Innocent, schminishant. Like, um, so that's, by the way, to interrupt, that's my wife's reaction when we first started watching. Of course. <laughs> you right? know, right. You know, the five days thing. Yeah. How did she, you know, how did she not know that kind of stuff, you know? But I think, um, I think there is this tendency <clears throat> to think of, bad people who do bad things as being like extremely Machiavellian and clever and manipulative. So the minute we associate badness, we're like, well, of course they're an arch villain who is like doing all these things. Right. And and then we also fantasize about what heroes we would be in bad situations. Mm. And I think what really found, I found particularly compelling about the story was that for women, most women, we've all been in slightly sketchy situations mm. And the path out of it is like laugh the jokes until you have a clear exit strategy. You don't like mm. 
if somebody gets a bit handsy, you don't like turn around and punch them in the face. Otherwise you can end up dead. Mm -hmm. And I think I just got off shooting as a DP shooting this show called the night stalker, which mm. is a Ramirez. <clears throat> who's that you know i mean i'm assuming you're like a true crime aficionado so you know all the killers <laughs> no I, well then i should have my wife here because she is she's the one that's the true crime aficionado oh, in my yeah. house but uh I, i'm more the i'm the doc aficionado but not necessarily true crime specifically but, okay uh, yeah so richard ramirez is this guy in the 80s he kills like i don't know like 27 people in la it's like unbelievable yeah. how many people he killed yeah. in really grim ways but you know, there were several children and women that he assaulted and then let go. Mm. And then there, and they were always the ones that didn't fight back. Mm. And there's one woman who like, while Ramirez was killing her husband, she found the shotgun and pulled it on him, but then the shotgun jammed and she never managed to kill him. And they never found that woman's eyeballs. Like, yeah, yeah. like he killed her in, in, I can't remember how many stab wounds there were, but it was in the dozens. And it was such a, pairing that with this, it was like, if you are with somebody who's in a psychotic state, your only way out is to try and get their heart rate lower mm. and wait until you have a really foolproof exit strategy because anything less is going to get you killed. And I think it's quite notable that, like, as they're driving across the country, Charlie keeps on sort of asking Carol, like, do you love me? Are you still in love mm. with me? And then even when he's in prison, he's writing to her being like, did you mean all those things you said to me? Yeah. Right. And you just imagine the dynamic of that. Like he still wants her. He wants to be her boyfriend and, and he's, he's forcing her to love him, but wants her to not acknowledge that. Mm. And she's only 14. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, and, and she met him when he was thirteen. Like she's yeah. really like a very a, a young fourteen. Yeah. But so so there's that element to it. But then there's this element that, as you as you've already mentioned, but it just this is a it's gripped not only just gripped Lincoln, Nebraska, or a state. It gripped the nation, didn't it? Because they're the so time. cinematic, those two. They they get caught, and it's like, wow, he looks like James Dean. Yeah, he does. And he and I think he'd watched Rebel Without a Cause the year before, mm. and like the lead character in Rebel Without a Cause is called Jim Stark, and he's called right. Charlie Stark Weather, yeah. and and it's this outsider, and like I'm troubled. You can just see him being like, I'm that's that's who I am. Mm. Uh, and so he styles himself like like that guy and then uh, the power of black and white photography is pretty astonishing because i did see some pictures of him in color and i was like oh he looks a bit podgy and see yeah. his bad skin a bit better and you know yeah but i mean it's just it so you've got some amazing archive here right so um i mean and that's what's i mean one of the other things that struck me but uh, i mean what you you have it's it's the early days of television but she, I mean, she actually goes on the Today Show, right? I mean, you know, its PR is largely in its infancy, I would imagine, or at least that kind of PR. Um, I mean, it's... And you it's, can feel it. They have no idea what they're doing. And so oh, that, my God. Yeah. It's just a disaster. Like, the interview's yeah. terrible. And, and, and anyway. And the poor lawyer who's told her to keep her cool. Not, I mean, it's... I, go, I mean, 
it's a bad analogy, but it's almost like the, you know, the 1960 debate when they say, you know, Nixon came across looking all, you know, everyone just stopped, you know, lost their, you know, Nixon just came across really bad on camera because they had no appreciation for how you did come across on camera even then. And she, yeah, she comes off as this cool, maybe even conniving, older uh, than yeah, she was. Even as she grows up, I don't think she does very well on camera. True. <clears throat> she's, um, she, you know, the place where she does best on camera is those home videos when she's mm. relaxed. Right. But she's a woman, I think, even as a young person who sort of had her fists up a bit because she come from really tough, wrong side of the tracks. Mm. And so she emoted a sort of aggressiveness about her that people immediately connected with psychotic murderess or right. murderer. Or, you know, and, and at the time, true, as, as you point out, I think it's especially in episode one, you know, this rise of teenage culture and rock and roll, and she's the bad girl. You know, you've already said wrong side of the tracks, but there's something about, you know, automatically this assumption's made about who she is in terms of, you know. Yeah, and I learned a lot. I think I really got inside the head of, of the 1950s adult and understanding that sort of like rock and roll is a bit like what I think of with like fentanyl. You know, right. I mean, people really thought it was going to destroy your life. And in many ways, a lot of the things that nowadays would be like pre-sex marriage or, or whatever, mm. that would ruin your life. I mean, back mm. then. Mm. And so it was just seen as incredibly frightening for adults. And then she and he conformed to that sort of rockabilly look and probably vibe as well. And then they were poor. And so mm. uh, it was it was hard for people to have compassion for, for her. Yeah. And critically, really critically for the police, when they went over to that house, they went over to the house f five times. Was like, I mean, not five, four, three, um, during the time when they were cooped up in the mm. house. And she was the one who opened the door. So they're either idiots or she's like ridiculously manipulative mm, mm. and they weren't going to go for the we're idiots story. So they went for the like, oh, well, she's, she's like a stratospherically manipulative 14 year old. You've never seen anything the likes of it. Yeah. And then at the same time, I mean, I don't think I'm giving too much away. There was this other case that they had been really slow to solve that obviously Charlie uh, Starkweather was not just implicated he did we know he did the uh, he, sh he killed this uh fella uh and they were you know if they had just not been seemingly idiots then they would have it would have a lot well 10 more people would still be alive right right uh, or would have been alive and her life wouldn't have been ruined yeah i, I mean i think that they the, they really dropped the ball but you know, there just weren't any murders around. So I don't think it was even on the radar that, like... Uh, that's fair enough, the, yeah. You know, it, it, it was such an extreme... I mean, there were two police officers for the whole city. And so, I think at night, two patrol cars. Yeah. And so the idea that, like, oh, this could be a big crime that they're unearthing yeah, when yeah, the 14-year-old yeah. is acting a bit weird when she opens yeah. the door... They were just like, oh, she's poor, and her grandma's hysterical, keeps us sending out us over there, and it's annoying. Mm. And we're going to go back and deal with our business. 
And I think that's another thing, going back to the stuff that you've, uh, the, you know, the archive, is that, you know, the, the other thing that it, it amazed me is that, you know, you've got these policemen and the prosecution and everyone just kind of, they're sort of naive themselves. They just answer all the questions that get thrown at them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, you would never or have... Or they killed them, they just tell the news. Okay, they're like, well, oh. And in the, these great accents that you don't even really hear anymore, even in the U.S., you know, from the from the fifties. Yeah, you know. I mean, I watched that footage, and it almost feels like a movie, like the yeah. hats and the. It feels like you're on sort of Raymond Carver, uh, Chandler, maybe yeah. both of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's just so unreally uh, yeah. distant, but so close, you know. Yeah. Or that even while this is all going on, they just, because it's early days, I think, as you point out, the, the local TV station had just gotten their cameras, right? Uh, they bring the, his, Charlie Starkweather's parents in and just sit them down at a table, and that's what goes for TV, and they uh, just ask him questions about him. You know, it would, you, would, you know, it's, it's absolutely amazing, and it's a, an int- amazing... Yeah, and the dad has this sort of astonishing response to, like, were you with the boy or against the boy? Yeah. And he was like, well, the first three murders, I kind of thought, well, stuff can happen. But by the time he killed the farmer, then I knew that this was not okay anymore. And I was like, but I mean, he's just genuinely thinking out loud, you yeah. know, I mean, he's nervous, yeah. but he's, he doesn't, he hasn't prepared anything. But I, I guess, and then also further talking to you, then it is no surprise then why this continues to grip a nation and has certainly for decades now. Uh, and for someone my age and younger, we didn't even realize it. I didn't realize all these films are, it's not even obliquely inspired. I mean, they are directly inspired by this Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, True Romance is the same music. The theme music is the same as Badlands, and Badlands is directly about them. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think... um, I mean, Natural Born Killers. I mean, they all took, went in different, you know, different directions with this, but it all goes back to, to this story. Yeah. I mean, I think that we feel, I mean, this is a bit of a like psychological stretch, but I'm going to say anyway, I I think love fears is puts a lot of fear into us, love and sex and all those Mm. feelings. Yeah. So I think sometimes we're like, yeah, but could it make you crazy? And, And could it make you kill a bunch of people? Like we love the idea of sort of psychotic love. Yeah. And this wasn't psychotic love. It was something much more yeah. mundane and kind of gross. But I think we have that fascination, which is why it keeps on popping up over and over again, is could love be pernicious? Hmm. Hmm. I think that's a very good point. And then I guess there is this, just this slight subtext that uh, a lot of these films you're talking about were the early 90s. So what was going on then that uh, was causing us to revisit that? Uh, but yes, it's... Uh, I think it is a, it's an interesting, uh, an interesting point that maybe we'll give our, uh, let's give our listeners a quick uh, early break here, and we'll be right back with uh, Nicola Marsh, the director of the Showtime docuseries, The Twelfth Victim. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with Nicola Marsh, the director of the Showtime docuseries, The Twelfth Victim. We were just talking about 
what love can do to us or what we think it might be able to do to us. Um, I mean, what is, is this partly also the, uh, the, the attraction of true crime? You think you, that's the other thing your, uh, your docuseries does a very good job of exploring. Uh, and I asked that question actually in a recent, fairly recent podcast, and we had to edit it out because the person said they had no idea what why people were, were attracted to true crime, and that's that was how they made their living. But uh, you've actually gone about and sort of answered that question with your with your film. Yeah, I mean, I think um, true crime is for a lot of people is like a mental roller coaster, right? You get to experience mm. all the things you're afraid of but in a very safe way. It's the same reason we like horror movies. You know, mm. it's like, I want to be frightened, but I don't want to be actually afraid. Right. And I think I try to answer the question about why so many women watch true crime. Mm. So feel that statistic always feels a bit weird for, for me. Mm. I'm like, oh, why are we watching so much of it? But I think women are just much more afraid of, of rape and murder because we're more likely to be the victims mm. of it. And I think most women, maybe not daily, but like once a month, you'll be walking down a street and think, oh, shit. You know, you, it does cross your mind. Like, I mean, and maybe men think that too, but it, uh, maybe not in an elevator when the doors close and it's like, right, right. you know, three guys who maybe don't look very friendly. I don't think men are thinking, oh, whoa, this could be a weird situation. But women do have to think like that. Mm-hmm. Um and so watching true crime allows us to ride that roller coaster. And you'll notice that most of the true crime series resolve in capture and punishment. Very few true crime series are like, and we never found the guy and, and, and yeah. you know, the justice system doesn't work. Right. Right. Could because you get that, away with, <laughs> could you get away with trying to make something like that? <laughs> I don't think, I think it will be a real bummer for people. I think yeah. people want to know that even when bad things happen, there's retribution and that the world is safe and we catch the guy and we can explain why the guy did the thing. Um, and uh, the closer that the guy looks like somebody you know, the more thrilling the ride is. Mm. You know, the more he looks normal, the more he looks like Ted Bundy, the more you, right. you're like, ooh. Maybe it is that weird neighbor that I've been talking too much to or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really thrilling ride for people. And I think also being able to engage your logic and try and outsmart the series is a big one. Well, that mm. couldn't be true because of this. It's really fun. It, it allows participation. And I think that's you're always trying to sort of engage your audience to actually participate and not just be mm. ingesting it passively. Yeah. I think maybe for some of us guys, we're also just always a bit clueless <laughs> i think we're probably not even aware that we sometimes it are i mean i know it's much more as you said for for women in that set, uh, that way but uh we're probably just not even aware that we're in danger <laughs> when we yeah. actually are you know um but that's yeah I, mean, I agree yeah i mean what is the what's the what's the biggest challenge in, in covering such an iconic story because you've got all this you've you've got all this also There's not as much archival as you think. Right. Like some of the archive is a recreation that I shot to look like. Not the stuff that looks like recre. Like that stuff is like it's color and it's obvious. But there's a lot of the black white footage. I was like, oh, I don't have anything for Charlie getting arrested or Carol getting arrested. Right. 
So I like took like an eight millimeter camera Oh, and cool. we got like a fifties police car and some uniforms and just I tried to shoot it really badly. But like, there's no way that an actual news crew would have been there when Charlie was getting arrested on some random road. And, but I was like, we don't have anything and I'm not Right. going to animate it. Cause that feels a bit Yeah. right for the moment. Yeah. And so that was, I think, and then most of the recordings of recreations because Right. most of the stuff we had was just transcripts. It's just words on a page and you could use documentary. You can't just like pan down words. Exactly. And so we got actors, we re-recorded it, then we made it incredibly dirty, the audio, so that you'd sort of, even though you were reading the transcript, you would hear it and think, oh, maybe there was a recording in the courtroom, which there never was. But like, just to allow yourself to sort of be in that emotional space, And, and what it must have been like to say these words in a big room and a packed, you know, courtroom it, it, to give you that feeling. But sort of figuring out where the line is between being untrue is important to me. Like, I don't want to represent something that didn't wasn't said or wasn't done. But I also want people to feel what those words must have felt like at the time. No, and I think you're, I mean, you're very upfront. It, it says the words of, right? You know, um, and so, well, some people may not put two and two together and realize that that means it's probably someone reading them, but, or, Yeah. or acting them. But, uh, no, I think you're very, and I think that is, it's very powerful. I mean, we do have, we do know what Charlie Starkweather sounded like, right? So you had to find someone who could come pretty close, but I guess it's about finding a good Nebraskan or Midw
And that's the stuff that, like, in the shower and she's opening the door yeah. and she's kind of biting the lip and stuff. And a lot of that was based on sales. Like, they had to cast an actor who was a bit of a name in order to get the money and blah, right, blah, blah. So right. there you are. It's capitalism. Yeah, well, I mean, what was... So when you were tackling this, was this uh, was this your idea? Were you... Uh, uh, and what, you know, what was the unique... I guess, did you know from the beginning that unique angle that you were going to be bringing to the story was Carol's story? Yes, because it was based on the book. Oh, the based on the yeah. Uh, and so that was... I mean, that book is very sort of... Um, from the outset, very pro Carol. And I felt it was really important to first think Carol was guilty before you found her innocent mm. so that you can experience what the police felt, what Nebraskans felt like. That it was very, very easy to see her as guilty um, rather than being like, aren't these people in the 1950s misogynistic idiots? You know, because they weren't. No. And uh, you just ra you raised it brought up a good point i mean i guess you did go back to nebraska and did some filming there um did, yeah yeah how is that i mean uh, is it still palpable the feeling yes is it there's nobody in nebraska who doesn't know about this especially you know and but nobody they all know about it and uh you know they still get sort of like tourists coming to see charlie's grave and um uh, I mean, it, you know, there's not a lot of reasons that the national press, any reasons the national press was coming to Lincoln, Nebraska. So when it happened in 1958, it was a, astonishing right. that like the entire of the United States and some of the world's press pool was suddenly in Lincoln, Nebraska. And then all that footage got beamed all over the world. And so it, they, they, uh, they got on the map, as it were, but for the wrong reasons. And I think they smart a bit about that. And... Mm -hmm. I think for any Nebraskan that went through it, hmm. it was like 9-11. Like, it was like nobody forgets right. what it was like those three days and two days when they couldn't find them. Right. And they were under literally under lockdown. Yeah, like yeah. people were moving their dresses and putting them in front of the door and everybody had their guns out. Like, I mean, nobody had ever de dealt with. And also Charlie's killing people seemingly at random in random places. So it doesn't feel like you can be like, oh, well, it won't be me because. Hmm. It's an interesting point. I mean, it's not something we, it's not the subject of the film and not even something we need to, I guess, really concern ourselves with. But any idea why he did this? I mean, I do think I have some idea. Um, so he's impotent, right? Mm. He's 18, 19. He has a pretty strong learning disability and a stutter, and he's starting to lose his eyesight to what would have been quite catastrophic levels in a year or two. Oh, really? Did he have a condition yeah. of some sort? Yeah. And he had a really, two really extreme, I'll just call them concussions, once as a little child and then once as like a, I think he was like 15. Okay. And... The second concussion had given him a, a really bad headaches there on after for a long period of time. Yeah. Like, I think, into his death. Yeah. Um, and so he's, like, an incredibly sexually frustrated 19-year-old with maybe some sort of brain injury and a learning disability. And he's really angry. He's just, his life is almost over, and he's 19, and he's, like, thrashing around looking for a lifeline. 
and that lifeline, the only thing left and available for him is destruction. You know, like mm. everybody wants to be noticed. Even if if good affirmation is not available, but we'll go for bad affirmation because mm. just being ignored is just about the worst thing for a human being. Yeah, yeah, and you actually, you in fairness, you do touch on that in the in the f- first episode as well. I think uh, that uh, I think was it one of the. Uh, do you have a? Um, uh, so psychologists who even talks about yeah, I mean the, the murder of the women yeah. is oh, yeah. so it's, it's horrific. Yeah. It's really grotesque yeah. and really um, sexually infused. Yeah. yeah, and I think that tells you something about why he's killing people. And I think a couple of the others may have been sexually fused, but but the ward murders there was mm. such a um, powerful celebrated family that there was there really wasn't a lot of information that we could find about those murders anyway, because I think out of respect, mm. it really was not disclosed. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, with the wards, you have the granddaughter on, on camera. Liza, I love yeah. her. She's fantastic. She's really good. And I think, you know, she'd inherited a lot of trauma from her father. So for your audience, her father was 14, he was at boarding school and he comes back home and both his parents have been murdered in, in really mm. brutal ways. And he makes the decision to not talk about it and not think about it and mm. move somewhere else. And interestingly enough, as an adult, he he deals in antiquities mm. and it's such a symbol for like trying to freeze time and not right. wanting to let go of things, I think. And Liza is like digging around trying to unearth all the bones, much to, I think, probably her father's chagrin or, or at least to yeah. his pain. But I think she's trying to get oxygen on the whole thing. And it's become part of her life's work to do that, to sort of exercise, exorcise mm. these demons that have really um, chased her whole family around. You know, like it, it, it's the trauma of that is, and especially back then in those days, nobody was like, giving a 14 year old therapy or like, let's talk about it. And what do you, I think uh, it's, you know, actually we're hard to believe we're starting to come to the end of our, our time together, um, Nicola, but what do you hope? So I could talk to you all day. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. True. (laughs) I mean, what do you hope this, uh, well, we could, well, we'll talk a little longer then. Um, Flattery will get you everywhere. Uh, But uh, (laughs) What do you hope this series' legacy will be? I mean, like, for Carol, I think it would be great if she could get a pardon. I think she's innocent. She's kept her story the whole time. And even if she isn't innocent, which I do think she is, she was 14 at the time and she was tried as an adult, which is just completely unacceptable. Yeah. Um, and she didn't actually kill anybody. Like, even on the worst-case scenario, nobody said, oh, well, will she stab people and kill people? I mean, Charlie mm. tries to suggest it, but it's just so obviously transparent. I mean, just bullshit. Nobody even believes him. But I think it would be nice for her to get a formal pardon because I think it would, she's tried so hard for so many years to not be the villain. And I think she realizes when she gets out of prison and she's 30, Mm. that she's going to go down in the Wikipedia page as this horrible murderer. And she's like, but that's not what happened. And also the, uh, I'm accused of murdering my family members, people I, I still miss. And so she's really tried to clear her name. And I think it'd be nice if, if more than just a few people, but actually like some institution was able to 
say we believe you. Um, and I think generally as a series as a whole, I think I'd love it if it could just shed a little bit of light on maybe how people behave in abusive situations. Mm. They don't necessarily act in sort of dramatic and and sort of physically aggressive ways that that um, we tend to sort of hmm. take things very slowly. And I think that is often confused by both the aggressor and law enforcement as sort of, oh, you're into it. Right. Or you're at least, yeah, you're an accomplice of, you're, you're complicit in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's, uh, um, I mean, I guess, and she's not, I mean, not to give too much away, but she's not really in a, she's, I mean, that's the other story is that this, this in fact, more so than, uh, than, than the, the, the crimes themselves. I mean, the links that she's gone to and will has continued to go to, to prove her innocence is, uh, I mean, I'm sure there are others. We know there are others sort of in similar situations who've, probably have just gone off and tried to live their lives quietly somewhere. But she is very adamant and has done gone to all kinds of lengths to, to clear her name. I think it, particularly because it was her family members that she stands accused yeah. of killing. I think she couldn't live with, yeah. with, with that narrative. And then I think also because the story was so famous, it didn't matter where she went in America, people were like, oh, you're Carol Fugate, I know who you are. Mm. And like, you know, she she gets released from prison, she takes a job in a hospital, and like there are people who won't ride in the elevator with her. And yeah. you know, it, it, she just couldn't get away from it. And so she's like, Well, if you can't get away from it, I'm gonna have to fight back. And I think she's not uh somebody who's seeking fame at all. So I think it's quite difficult for her to do it. Yet she's been in the public eye since she was 14. So that must be such a difficult life she's had to leave. You know, been on national TV back when no one went on national TV. And, and ever since, you know, she she's on, as you say, because the story keeps popping up. Um, she's there. She keeps, you know, it, it doesn't go away for her. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think that you can... <clears throat> lose your parents in that style yeah. and get over it because I think, so, the, she, you know, she runs to the police and the first thing she says is, can I see my parents? Right. And, you know, the police sort of fob her off for like a couple of days and finally they're like, don't you know, girl, they're dead. And that's how she finds out her parents yeah. are dead. Yeah. And nobody can come and visit her in prison because her parents are not around anymore. And, the next time she sees her ex-boyfriend now knowing that he had not only killed her parents, but like hmm. but lied about killing her parents uh, is at a trial where he's trying to put her in prison and does it successfully wins. Hmm. Yeah. And it's like, it's like somebody like making you a nice dinner and then telling you afterwards, you just ate your pet. You know what hmm. I mean? The horror of like what hmm. she'd been through and uh, being his, you know, accomplice to think she was saving her parents because he kept on saying, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to get your parents killed. Hmm. And then find out that was all a lie. 
I, I, it just the the mind fuck of that. Sorry, I don't know if I'm like swearing or something. Oh, you, we, we've said far worse on this show, so don't. Okay, worry good. So just keep it out. <laughs> but the, the I don't think, and when that happens at fourteen, I don't think you ever get over that. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a good point. Um, what is what's next for you, in terms of? Uh, um, uh, when's your show coming out? Because then I I can figure out if I'm allowed to tell you or not. <laughs> Well, uh, this will probably be released next week, but... Uh, after Monday? Uh, yes, it would be after Monday. Well, so I think uh, I'm going to... I'm doing a documentary with Demi Lovato about child stardom. Oh, wow. So completely different. I mean, I've done a lot of music stuff. Yeah. But I think... It, I, I don't know. I'm really interested in that idea of identity and how your identity gets formed in your teen years and what happens if you intersect with capitalism in those years. Interesting. Well, we'll look forward to it. If we haven't scared you off, then we'd love to, to have no, you back on. No, you're definitely not scared me off. <laughs> I mean, it will be a year or so. So um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll put it in our diary and hopefully okay. uh, we'll, uh, uh, and also I, uh, we probably should always have a segment on here that's called how accurate is your IMDB profile? Uh, but uh is it true that you are DP on this Bono, The Edge, and David Letterman doc that's yes. coming out? I've seen previews I just saw for those it. guys last night because we had a screening. Bono was there and Edge and Letterman in L.A. And we showed it to a bunch of Disney people. Amazing. And Morgan Neville, who's the director, who's a, uh, I mean. Right. He's a prolific and very. Well, he was exec uh, on this, on on 12th yeah. Victim, right? Yeah. We, we've been working together for almost a couple of decades. And he was like, do you want to come to Ireland and film you two in a concert for 300 people? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, and it ended up being just a real pleasure. And, you know, it wasn't a big U2 fan, but those guys mm. are really lovely, like really, really lovely, smart, cool, thoughtful people. And I mean, the thing that struck me, I, I don't know why, but I, I, I was like, and then David Letterman? How does he? I know, I know. How does this well, all fit together? But I guess Hollywood. Watch the movie, and then we we'll talk again. Okay. I mean, they're friends, so that's that. It's quite sweet, actually. But yeah, I mean. Well, excellent. Well, I think again, uh, do uh, do check that out because it looks. And again, uh, that's black and white, isn't it? Or a lot of it is. No. No. Or is the, it the YouTube thing is mostly color, but okay. But a lot of YouTube's work is in black and white, but what we shot was in color. Okay. All right. Well, thank you again for uh, for coming on. It was a pleasure meeting you, Nicola. The uh, and just remind our listeners and viewers where we've been talking with Nicola Marsh, the director of the Showtime docu series, The Twelfth Victim. All four episodes are available now. I've been told, so uh, do do check it out if you have access to Showtime. I won't say how you should or should not have access, but give it a give it a try. And uh, thanks again, Nicola. Uh, good luck with everything and uh, with your uh, that next project, which sounds really interesting. And uh, yeah, thanks again. I also would like to thank those who helped make this podcast possible. A big shout out to Sam and Joe at Intersound Audio in York, England. Big thanks to Amy Ord, our podcast manager at Alamo Pictures, who ensures we continue getting great guests onto the show and that everything otherwise runs smoothly. Finally, a big thanks to our listeners. Many of you have been with us for four incredible seasons. Please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas, whether it is on YouTube, social media, or directly by email. 
Please also remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.